That song, All I Want for Christmas is You, I think why it's such a classic uh, is because it, it gets to this heart, this message that we all have something we're yearning for for Christmas. Uh, I think of my, my kids. I have a, a six-year-old and a seven-year-old. Just a couple weeks ago, I was walking through a toy aisle, which is very dangerous with kids. Uh, and uh, Elijah, he, he looks and he's like, I want that for Christmas. And we walk three more steps later. He's like, no, no, I want that for Christmas. Uh, and as we're talking, I told him, I said, hey, we're going to have to wait before we decide what we're getting. And he started to get a little teary-eyed. And he said, but, but I don't know if I'm going to want that later. <laughs> and it, it gets to this, this message that there's, there's always things that we're yearning for. No matter the Christmas season, year after year, there's always something we want for Christmas. In fact, I have a picture of me when I was a kid uh, wanting a video game and excited that I got it for Christmas. My, my mom would joke that the song I should have sung is All I Want for Christmas is my four front teeth. So I was missing all four of them. Uh, but, but as we get older, uh, maybe the song for All I Want for Christmas isn't so much stuff, but it is about people and relationships. And I do think why Mariah Carey's song is so popular is because it, it says, I don't care about the, the gifts under the Christmas tree. What I want is this intimate relationship, this loving relationship with somebody else. She says, this is what I really want for Christmas. And that as we enter into this Christmas season, I think we all have an all I want for statement. Maybe some of you are, are I, I have a friend like this, that the day after Christmas, they start their countdown for the next one. Uh, so maybe some of you, like, you're just anticipating all you want for Christmas is the day to be here. And you're marking off the days, and you kind of just say, I, I, I wish the next 14 days didn't exist. I wish I was just there on Christmas Day. Uh, but maybe for some of you, it's, it's, a, it's a little more sobering and different time as you enter this Christmas season. Is you're about to spend time with family or relatives or close ones, and, uh, and the relationship isn't what it used to be. And so you're thinking, all I want for Christmas is what, 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 uh, what was once there, that it's no longer there, and I wish it could be restored. Uh, others, you walk through this season, you say, all I want for Christmas uh, and is peace, because you're walking through grief and sorrow, that, uh, that there's pain that's happened, there's loss that's happened in your life, and as you enter the season, uh, there isn't joy, uh, there's just sorrow. And maybe some of you are like Mariah Carey, and you're single, and you say, oh, man, all I want for Christmas is the significant other, this one other person, that this is the one thing I'm missing in my life, that if I had that, then I'd be satisfied. The reality is we, is we all have these things that are missing that we feel like, if I only had this, all I want is blank, and then I'll be satisfied. But what I want to do today is I want us to shift the story a little bit around and to start to think of what would God's words to us be? What, what does God desire for Christmas? And I, I think God's words would be actually very similar to Mariah Carey's song, that God would say, all I want for Christmas is you. And that's what we're going to dive into today. Uh, let me pray. God, I come to you and I pray as we get into your word, God, that, uh, that the words I share would not be mine, but would be yours. Lord, if there's anything I share that isn't true to your word, God, I pray that people would quickly dismiss it. They wouldn't cling on to that. But instead, if there are things that are true to who you are and, and your character, that that would be what hangs in people's hearts and in people's minds. So lift it up in Jesus' name. Amen. So my name is Jonathan. I'm on staff here with Nona Church. Uh, Colin was very gracious to offer me the chance to come and start our series on uh, the classics, the Christmas classics. And I want to quickly say also hi to those who are watching online. Uh, as we enter this Christmas season, it reminds me of a few years back. Uh, I, was, I used to live in North Dakota, very cold. Uh, about how many people in this room is how many people are in the entire state. Uh, so uh, the town I lived in was 
obviously very small, and they had a tiny airport. And so if I ever wanted to fly home, I lived in North Dakota. My parents lived all the way in Nevada. So if I ever wanted to go home, I had to fly. And so I had bought a ticket, and pretty much every time I buy a ticket, the, the tickets in the town I'm from, Dickinson, are crazy high. So I would always buy tickets at an airport that was about an hour and a half away. Uh, so uh, I had I got ready for Christmas, I had my ticket printed, I packed my bags, and I quickly double-checked my ticket before I was about to hop in the car in the middle of the night to catch an early flight in Bismarck, North Dakota. So I looked at my ticket, it said, this same date, this same, this same time, United Airlines, I knew, okay, I'm leaving the right date, I'll get there in time, I'm going to the right airline. And so I hop in my car, I think at 3.30 in the morning, I drive the hour and a half, I get to the airport, there's a line of people at the United desk, uh, I go in. And I wait in line, and I finally get up front, and I show them my ticket to check in. And they say, you're not on this flight. Of course I am. I show them my ticket. I say, look, here's the date. It's this day. Here's the time. Same time. Here's uh, your airline. And then they point a little further down, and they say, you're at the wrong starting destination. Your ticket's back in Dickinson. I had forgot that there had been a sale, and I, would cut, I got a ticket for the same price as the other one. I was like, oh, how great will it be to not have to drive an hour and a half, and, and I can wake up later. Uh, needless to say, that was not my morning. Uh, and so I, I found myself, because it's Christmas time, their flight is full. They have no room. So I hopped back in the car, drove an hour and a half back, making calls, spending hundreds of dollars to change my flight to catch another flight another day later uh, to get home. Why I share that is uh, I, what happened, I had all the right details except one, the starting destination. And as we start this Christmas classic series, sometimes you might think if we're starting a Christmas series, we're going to look at the nativity scene, maybe Jesus' birth or something with Mary or the shepherd or the sheep or the wise men, uh, but we're not going there. Instead, what I want us to do is to go to the right starting place because if we don't get the right reason why Jesus came, we're going to miss the whole nativity scene. And what we're going to talk about today is really why did Jesus come as a baby in a manger? Why are, we, why, why are we celebrating this season? And that before we continue through the Christmas classics to see more of the traditional story of Jesus, we need to go back and say, what's the starting point? What do we need to get first in order to get everything else right? And so we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 2. A little background of the book of Philippians. This was written by a guy named Paul. Uh, he had written a lot of the New Testament. And when he writes this, he's in the middle of a jail sentence. He's going to be in jail for about two years, and so he had multiple Christmas seasons where he could have said, all I want for is blank. In fact, for him, I promise, or I'm quite sure that he would have wanted to not be in jail. He talks about in his letter how he misses those relationships, those, those people he knew that he couldn't see anymore. He talks about in the same letter that there's moments where he's well-fed and there's moments where he's hungry. There's, uh, there's this this continual story in this book of Philippians that there's a lot of things missing, that he could have a lot of all I want for statements. Now, what's so fascinating about the book of Philippians is that this short book, about six pages in a Bible, he talks about joy in the same moments. In fact, he'll say, he'll talk about his own joy, or he'll challenge people to rejoice. That he's, it's, and he says it time and time again. In fact, he talks about joy or rejoicing not one or two times, not five times, not ten times, but 16 times in this letter of Philippians, he talks about joy, joy, joy. In fact, I might argue Paul is the original author of joy to the world uh, because he had this vision and this, this 
concept and, and this reality that, like, he was experiencing joy in his life. Even though everything else wasn't making sense, if anyone could say, all I want for Christmas is blank, it could have been him. But he instead was saying, I already have what I need, and it's joy with God. But how does he get there? How does he have this joy that in the middle of life, not the way he wanted it to be, he's communicating time over time over time about this joy, about this happiness he has in his relationship with God. Well, we're going to turn to Philippians 2.5 and see exactly how that plays out. He says this at the beginning. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, he starts and says, the reason, the secret that I have to being content no matter the circumstances is the joy that I have with God when I realize and I think the way that, that Christ thinks about me. You see, Christmas should be a reminder, and, and it is for Paul, of just how far God is willing to go and how much God is willing to do to bring us into a right relationship with him. That he realized all that Christ has done, and he realized the perspective Christ had when he came to earth, and he said, this is what shifts my mind in the circumstance. When I realize what Christ thinks about me, when, when Jesus himself sings, all I want for Christmas is you, when Paul hears that for himself, he says, even though my life isn't the way I want it to be, I'm experiencing joy. So what exactly is Christ thinking? What is the starting point for Jesus as he comes to earth? Well, we'll see this in the very next verse. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So this is one of the first starting points we have to get right. It says, who, though he was in the form of God. What that means is that Jesus is 100% God. He is in the form of God. Sometimes when we think about Jesus, we can think of him separate from his deity, separate from him being actually fully and wholly God. And so we think of Jesus through the nativity scene. We say, oh, that was, that's a nice little thing I can put on my yard of a little baby in a manger and set up the scene, but it has no impact on my life today. We don't live in a world, uh, at least in, in Orlando, where we're, we're walking around sheep and cattle, and we don't have shepherds that pass, pass us by. And so we can feel disconnected from the story of Jesus and the story of Christmas if we don't realize that it starts with the reality that Jesus is God. That means he's eternal. That means when Jesus came, he is fully and wholly God. He was, he was the one who also created the world. He's the one that we also are praying to each day, that Jesus is in the form of God. He is fully and wholly God. And what's crazy is the next line. It says, even though he's 100% God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. So what he's saying is, even though he is 100% God, he's not looking to be treated as God, equal to his, his role. We experience this all the time in our lives of people being treated equal to the role that they're in. Uh, your boss, if you don't treat your boss like your boss, the role that he's in, you won't last in your job very, very much. If you tell your boss, well, actually, I want you to do that instead of me, you will be working at McDonald's probably the next week. Uh, if... With parents, uh, or with uh, teachers and students, we see the same thing. If, if a student talks back to a teacher, they will not last very long in that classroom. They will, they'll have great consequences because they're not, they're not treating them equal to their role. Uh, parents, we know this very well with our kids. We have these conversations often of when I say something, you need to treat my words equal to my role as your parent. Sometimes I say, you need to do it because I said so. I don't need to give you any rules. I don't need to give you any reasons. You just need to do it because you need to treat my words equal to who I am. Yet when Jesus came in his 100% God and his 100% deity, what he was after was not being treated equal to his role. He was after something else. In fact, I would say he was after someone else. He was after us. He was after 
you. That why he came, what he was grasping for was not his role as God, but his relationship with you. He said, the reason I've come, my mind, even though I'm 100% God, what I'm grasping for is not that you would treat me as God, but that I could have a relationship with you. And this is huge because if we understand that, that Jesus is God and, and that he is 100% God, he's eternal, then we can also understand every attribute of God ties to Jesus. Hebrews uh, is probably one of the, the most comprehensive books in the Bible that gives a, a lot of information about understanding Jesus as God. And one of the things it talks about in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 13, it says, but God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. It says, God, in his, in his eternity, his love for us is eternal. What he's grasping for is this loving relationship with us. God's love is eternal. And what's interesting about this verse in Hebrews 13, 5, is if you look at the original language, it literally says five negatives. It's essentially saying, never, no, never, no, never will I leave you or forsake you. Never, no, never, no, never will I leave you or forsake you. God's love is eternal. There are no conditions. There is not something that we can do in our life that, re that can remove us from our relationship with God. Maybe some of you have encountered in, in the Christian culture at a church that you've gone that there are conditions, that if you've done something wrong, you're no longer welcome. If there, there's a, a line to cross, and when you've crossed it, you are no longer welcome or to be part. God instead says, no, I, my love is eternal. No matter what you do, my love will remain. It is never, no, never no, never will I leave you or forsake you. His love is eternal. But sometimes we can think of Jesus like we think of Santa Claus. Uh, the song I think of, he knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be. Yeah, this, this idea of Santa is this all-knowing, all-seeing person, and you better act really good if you want something nice in your life. Otherwise, expect coal in your stockings. Now, oftentimes, we can do the same with God. We think, okay, God has the standard, and i got to do it just right. Otherwise, God's going to punish me or do these things wrong to me. And so i got to make sure that my life is right. I think, instead, God would say, he knows when you're sleeping. Yes, he knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. But he forgives all your mistakes. See, he understands everything that we walk through, everything that we experience. And he says, my love is eternal. It does not have conditions. I, I want to know you and have this relationship with you. And he continues to talk about what this looks like. Uh, the next verse, it says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, we know that he is 100% God, yet here it says that he took on the form of a servant. He became man. So he, now he's also 100% man. This is crucial to the starting point, the place that we have to start when we think about Christmas, we have to realize that Jesus is 100% God and at the same time 100% man in flesh. This is one of the great mysteries and difficulties of the Christian faith, but this is not a contradiction. This isn't like jumbo shrimp. Uh, this isn't like cheap and Disney or, uh, or the express lane and narcusi. No, Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. Yet it says here that even though he's man, he emptied himself. Well, what does that mean? Does, does that mean he's no longer God? No. Uh, he's giving up some of his rights as God. doesn't mean that he doesn't have them. 
So another flight that I did a few, actually last year, I was with three other of my friends, and we were going overseas actually to go share about Jesus. And um, one of the guys, Kevin, he had what's called Clear Secure. So if you're not familiar with Clear Secure, is if you pay a little bit of extra money and send some extra paperwork in, I think fingerprints, I don't know all the details. But if you do all this, they have a basically a fast pass through security. Uh, they they uh, they quote on their, their website that you can get through security in as little as 90 seconds. Um, so he has clear secure, but the other three of us don't. And so we're getting to where the long line is, and it's actually right around spring break time. So the line to go through security is insanely long. And meanwhile, he has, he's able to kind of walk through. He could just basically go through and kind of wave and laugh at us as we, as we sit through the, the minutes or hours of going through security. But what he does is he empties his rights with his clear secure and joins us in line. Now, it doesn't mean that he no longer has access to it, but he emptied his privileges as a clear secure person and instead took on the role of a lowly economy person in the line. Uh, And why he did it is because he wanted to have a personal relationship with us. He cared more about the relationship in that even though it was going to take longer, it was going to be more stressful, there was going to be more people bumping into us, he knew that it wasn't going to be as enjoyable as going straight through security. He said, what I value more is emptying my rights so that I can spend time with you, so I can serve you. And that God does the same. When he came to earth, even though he's 100% God, He emptied himself. He gave up his rights. Doesn't mean that he didn't still have them. But instead, he took on the form of a servant. He said, I want to, instead of being seen as equal, I want to serve you. I want to join you in line. I want to be with you in what you're going through and walking through in your life. That God's love is personal. There is no better way to understand uh, how how God loves us than to see that he actually took on flesh and blood. That he added on his uh, humanity so that he could understand in a new way, in a a greater way of everything that we walk through. Jesus got hungry. Uh, Jesus had uh, difficulty uh, throughout his life. He he would experience betrayal. He would experience grief and sorrow on earth. Uh, that, That as the things that we experience in our life, the things that we yearn for, Jesus experienced the same. Even though that was 2,000 years ago, maybe, again, we don't think of life in the the thoughts of uh, shepherds and sheep uh, and Romans, but I will tell you that the same heart issues have been been around since the beginning of time. But there are desires for acceptance. There's desires uh, for affirmation in our life, that we want uh, people to care for us, that Jesus walked through every desire that we have and also every temptation, yet he was without sin. In fact, that's why in, also in, in Hebrews, it talks about this vision of, this visual of Jesus. It says this, for we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way. What it's saying is, if we can get it, Jesus, when he came to earth, he understands everything we've experienced. He's joining us in the line. And when we realize that, this is the second part of the verse. It says, uh, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace. God has said, I've come to earth. I've joined you in the messiness of life. We're we're all in this queue of something in our life where we feel like this is not where I want to be. Something is, we are in a waiting period, whether it's something we desire or something that once was, but we're all kind of sitting in this queue and saying, 
God, where are you? Like, I want to get out of the queue. I want to, I would, God, would you give me the clear secure? Would you give me the fast pass through? But God doesn't say, I, I want to give you clear secure. He says, no, what I want to do is I want to join you in line. I want to walk through those things with you. It doesn't mean that, uh, that it's going to go quicker, but it will be a lot more enjoyable. Uh, if you'll, this is where the joy comes from. He says, when you realize that, when you realize that he understands everything, that God's love is personal, he's sitting with us in line of the things that are going through our life, that, that if we would turn to him, it says this in that same passage. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace so we may receive two things. We may receive mercy and find grace. So these are two words that you might hear often but are rarely defined. Mercy uh, is not getting what you deserve. So you're driving down I-4, you're going a little faster, a cop pulls you over, and they say, I give you mercy, I'm not going to give you a ticket. So it's not getting what you deserve. Grace is an undeserved gift. Same scenario, you get pulled over, he says, I'm not going to give you a ticket. And also, here's my next paycheck. <laughs> Something that you, you wouldn't expect. In fact, as we enter this Christmas season, I think it's good to even think of gifts that we give are all grace. They're all undeserved gifts. That it should help us remember God's undeserved gift toward us. That he has a gift to give us that we have not earned. None of your Christmas gifts should be that if you do enough right that you'll earn it. Uh, they're just they're gifts that are given because they love you, because they care about you. And what's fascinating about gifts, grace, undeserved gifts, is uh, how much you appreciate the gift often is tied to how much the person knows you. Uh, here's an example. Uh, a, few, uh, a while back when I, was a, when I was in my teenage years, my aunt, who didn't know me very well, uh, got me a present. I opened it up, and it was a used white sweatshirt with a giant tiger in the middle. Uh, when I looked on the back of the tag, it said, women's large. Uh, needless to say, that was not a gift that I cared much for. Uh, yet, a few years back, on one of my birthdays, my wife didn't spend very much money, but she had contacted the people that knew me, that, that, uh, that I'd known over the years, and they had, had them each write just a small note of something that they appreciated about me or something that they valued. And that was incredibly and deeply meaningful. That, they were both gifts, but one meant a whole lot more because there was a whole lot more knowing and knowledge of me. That it was tied to who I was. Everything, that, uh, everything in that gift communicated that I was known and was, was understood. And that if we understand Jesus as being deeply personal, that he really understands everything in our life, we don't have to see God as uh, Jesus is giving us just kind of these off-the-cuff things. It's like, oh, yeah, that's nice. But God says, no, I want to meet you in the deepest, hardest things that you're walking through, that you're sitting in life, and I want to meet you in that. And I want to give you grace, an undeserved gift to meet you in the hard things that are going on in life. It doesn't mean that they're going away, but he's saying, I want to join you in the line. I have joy, joy, joy joy to offer you in the midst of the hard that you're walking through, in the midst of the line and the waiting that you're experiencing. There's a quote from A.W. Tozer. I think she says it well. It says, it's one thing to know the truth, but the thing that changes life is experiencing the truth. That is the amazing aspect of Christ's love for you and me. He enables us to experience the truth, which is himself. See, oftentimes we are in the waiting line of life, uh, but we get so caught up in what, just sitting in line and looking ahead of, I can't wait till this person moves forward. I can't wait till this happens. Maybe we just get caught in distractions and we're on our phone and we're missing who's in line with us. How bad would it have been if Kevin, who left Clear Secure, came in the line and I was just like, ah, I'm just going to pretend like he's not there. I turn my back. I don't pay attention. Uh, 
But oftentimes we do that with God. God's love is personal. He's in line with us, but we get so caught up in our lives in the things that we want or the, the routines that are happening that we miss that Jesus is there in the middle of our struggles, in the middle of what we're walking through, that God's love is personal. And he has one last thought here in verse 8. He says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this first part, uh, it says being found in human form. Now, when you think about finding things, uh, there's really kind of only one moment that that happens. Something's been lost, and it's the first time you find it. So you guys have all lost your keys. That moment that you say, I found my keys, you're excited. You don't start walking out the door and be like, oh, I found them again. No, they're already there. You know where they're at. Uh, There's only one moment when Jesus was found in human form. The first time he was seen as a human when he was a baby in a manger. This is when he was found in human form. It says the moment that Jesus came, the moment that he appeared on earth, uh, he had, this was his plan. It says this. It says being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That the starting point that we have to get right is the day that Jesus was born, he knew that the end goal would be obedience to the point of death and death on a cross. One of the things that I think we don't think about often is why did Jesus have to die? It talks about that he came, essentially he knew that the day he was born, his end result of dying on a cross. But why did he have to die? I want you to think for 20 seconds, how would you answer that question if somebody came to you and said, well, why did Jesus have to die? So I think some of us might think uh, why he had to die is it was the ultimate sign of love. I don't think that's quite the right starting point. Some of us might think why he had to die, uh, it was to show an example of how to live a life that was perfect in following God. I don't think that's quite right. What we have to realize is that why he had to die is there's this great chasm between God and us. See, here's the reality. God is perfect. He has no flaws. He has nothing wrong. Even in this passage, it says he's obedient to death. There was no sin in him. But the problem is all of us are sinful. All of us have messed up and made mistakes. And here's the problem. God is perfect and and heaven is perfect. We are not. What happens if he allows imperfect people into heaven? Becomes imperfect again. And so God is dealing with this Desire of his love is eternal, his love is personal, yet there's this chasm of God is perfect and we are not. And since the beginning of time, God's answer for our imperfectness, for when we mess up, for when we do wrong, uh, is death. From Adam and Eve when they first sinned, they were told that they would die. There is no person on earth that lives for forever. We all die. And that this death is not only physical, but it's also spiritual. It's this disconnection from God. Uh, yet he, even though he realizes that there's this gap, uh, God wants to have a way to reconcile that. And so throughout the Old Testament, whenever there was wrongdoing, there was always a sacrifice that would happen. Oftentimes they would find a perfect, blameless animal, often a lamb, and that would be killed, that would have to die to cover a sin so that God would see them in right standing. So God would see them as perfect in that moment. 
But the problem is, they sin again. So there has to be another sacrifice, and another sacrifice, and another sacrifice. And there's never, it's never fully paid for. Yet when Jesus came, because he's fully God, and sin is ultimately against him, he wants to pay for all sin that is uh, against him. And so being fully God, he says, I, I want to pay for all sin. Uh, and the only way to do that is for me to die. God's love is deeply sacrificial. That when, the reason God loves us and wants us is not because we're some great investment, that we're going to have a great return. He knows that we have nothing to offer. He knows that we, have, we don't have uh, anything that he needs. But instead, just purely out of his character as God, he wants a relationship with us. He doesn't need us. We don't have anything to offer. He knows that his love is sacrificial, that there is nothing for us to offer. And I think one of the things we have to think about and wrestle with is where are we at with God? Because what happens is as we get to know God better, the instant response should be we become more aware of how bad we are. Paul, who writes a lot of the New Testament, experiences that same thing. Uh, he writes in another one of his letters, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And here's what's inter interesting. He says, of whom I am the worst. Paul, who's living his life every day for God, he's in prison for God. He's writing letters to other people to help them follow God. If anyone's life should look good and be a pretty good life, it'd be Paul's. But yet, as he gets to know God better, he says, I realize how sinful and how far off I am from God. I am the worst of sinners. He's realized how difficult, uh, how, how many sins he's done. And what, a question I want to ask you is, if you feel distant from God, um, maybe it might be tied to how good you view yourself. Uh, that if we don't realize how much God has to pay, then we're not going to have as much of a desire and a need to go before him. Uh, if you look in the Bible, it happens time and time again. When somebody actually encounters Jesus, spends time with him face-to-face, -face, the, the true God, their response is not thinking they're pretty good. Isaiah, when he goes before God, uh, he's in, it talks about him being in the throne room. His first words are, woe to me, a man of unclean lips. He becomes acutely aware of how messed up he is. Uh, when John, who is with Jesus, he was one of the 12 disciples, he's the one whom Jesus loved. If there's anyone that should feel kind of good about their identity, when he goes before the throne in Revelations, he falls to the ground as if dead. He realizes the great weight of his, of his sin and, and, the, and, the, and what God has to pay for him. So uh, the, there was a, a, this semester I've been going through uh, this book called Experiencing God. And every Thursday... I work with crew half my week, and we spend an extended time with God. And during this, we process and pray with God about experiencing him. And there's a quote from this book that really kind of sat with me, and, it, and I, I still process it a lot. And I want you to listen to this. It says, if you can't remember a time when your relationship with God was real, personal, and practical, you need to evaluate your walk with him. Ask him to bring you into genuine intimacy with him. How would you guys describe your relationship with God? Would you describe it as real, as personal, as practical? What's missing in your relationship with God? Where, are you at, what's your starting point that's off? How do you get right, how do you get back to the right starting point? Is it God's love as being eternal? Do you realize that God has an unconditional love? He'll never, no, never, no, never forsake you? Is that the point that you're missing? 
Or maybe that God's love is personal, that he really does understand the messiness and the weight that we're experiencing in our life. He really is aware and knows everything we're going through. And he wants to join us, offering us mercy and grace. Or is it, are you missing that God's love is really sacrificial? Do you realize how sinful you are? Or have you thought, if you're honest, that you thought, I'm a pretty good person. I go to church, I do these different things. And so God hasn't actually sacrificed that, that much for me. Uh, that something is missing in our starting point if we don't experience God as real, as personal, and practical. So what part of God's love are you missing? And as you think of this season, uh, as Jesus is found in a manger, uh, which love is he asking you to find? And which love is he asking you to bring along with? We have this uh, card on your, on your seats. Uh, and this is one way that you can say and invite someone to experience God's love, that this, as we talked about today, kind of the why of the Christmas story as we continue next week and into Christmas Eve, uh, that there's a lot of people that are in your lives that they all have an all I want for Christmas statement. Uh, that they all have something that they're yearning for. But the reality is, is if it's not God, they're missing the, the story. They're missing the point. They're at the wrong starting destination. And so my, my challenge to you is to think, even now, who's maybe one person that I could say, would you join me? Would you come and experience what God has to offer, that as you're walking through your all I want for Christmas, would you see that God has something to offer that's far more? Let me pray. God, I come to you and thank you uh, that you are a God that meets us in the midst of our lives, that you are eternal, that you have a love that is unconditional, uh, that, that we, we will never do anything that can remove us from your love, that your love is deeply personal, that you understand the waiting line that we're experiencing in our lives. You understand the sorrow that we're experiencing. You understand uh, the difficulties that we're walking through, and, and that your love is deeply sacrificial, that, that you are aware of the sins that we did yesterday. You are aware of what we've messed up in, and that, that God, may we become acutely aware of how much we actually need you, that we would not deceive ourselves in thinking that we're kind of good people, that we would have the right starting point and realize no, I am lost. I'm the worst without you. God, may we be able to walk through the season experiencing your love. In Jesus' name.